and welcome to another episode of Planning People, which this time accompanies a special edition, our summer work on busting the myths of financial advice and getting to the truth about all the numbers, the people and the propositions. Now, we know a fair few commentators may say, well, what is all this nonsense about equality? The job is done. Uh, So here to bust that myth with me today is Innes Miller. Innes is Chief Commercial Officer at PayGaps.com. He's a a consultant to the financial uh, services sector and has been doing some really, really interesting work regarding the gender pay gap and indeed the state of men and women in financial advice more generally. Ines, thank you so much for being with me. Uh, This is the second time you've been in, uh, so I'm glad to see that you weren't too scared to come back. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Ollie. It is indeed. No, it's good to be here. Thank you. Great stuff. Um, Well, look, as you know, no one comes through the podcast studio without undertaking the barbed wire riddle general knowledge assault course that is the weekly rock hard quiz. Do you remember the last one? I do indeed. There were some very obscure questions. Very obscure questions is what this is all about. Um, This week, we're talking about gender pay gaps and women and uh, quality. Uh, So I have prepared a short quiz. It's five questions on gaps. Okay. Um, How are you feeling about that as a topic? (laughs) Well, there are plenty of them. So uh, there are plenty of of them, as we're about to discover. Question one is the largest bridge in the world. It's in China. It's the Danyang Kunshan Grand Bridge. But how long is the gap that it spans? In short, how long is the bridge in meters? In it's massive. It's huge. In meters? Yeah. 20,000? It's 164,800. So that's nearly 165 kilometers. That's it was huge. completed in 2010. And obviously, it's difficult to get any sense of what it actually looks like from the air on Google Maps because obviously the Chinese have clamped down on Google. Uh, but it is absolutely incredible. Uh, so that's that. Question two Do you shop at Gap? Innes? I don't. You don't? Some nice clothes in there, if you're that way inclined. Um, It's one of America's most distinctive clothing brands, uh, but when was it founded? Was it in 1968, 69, or 1970? 68. Oh, 69, the year of Woodstock, by a, a man, Donald Fisher, and his wife, Doris F. Fisher, is headquartered in San Francisco, and this morning, its stock price on the NYSE was down 2.52%. Oops. Oopsie. Hit like most other retailers. It'll go back up again. These (laughs) things generally do. And that's not financial advice. Uh, Question three is a quotation from Jackie Lockie, who is head of financial planning at the CISI. She's been on this podcast too. Uh, Makes sense to quote her on this. Uh, She said recently, for people like HSBC, they have had issues in the past, like most banks with the quality of advice, with a large advice network. So they are starting off relatively small, but they're looking to start with a professional base of qualified advisors to international standard to provide that consistent, robust advice. What was she talking about? And it's a gap. Do, 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 The gender pension gap? The advice gap. Ah, okay. The advice gap, uh, the gap between people able to afford and access advice and those not. Uh, uh, So she was basically saying that the support that the CISI is giving to HSBC could help it to rebuild mass market financial advice uh, via the bank and indeed other banks. Uh, A bit of a controversial notion. Our readers are skeptical about banks and advice for obvious reasons. Uh, Will it work? Who knows? That remains to be seen. Question four in this. You've got no questions right, which means that's that terrible. It's, it's, I did better last time, actually. But, but actually, <laughs> it means that the Rock Hard Weekly Quiz is really doing its job. It's, it's really harder. performing this week. Uh, another quotation for you. It's from a world-famous book. 
that is now a world famous TV series. And no, it's not Game of Thrones. So here comes a quote. We were the people who were not in the papers. We lived in the blank white spaces at the edges of print. It gave us more freedom. We lived in the gaps between the stores. Stories, I should have said. Which book is that quote from? Shocking. I've got absolutely no idea. It's about women. It's a tale about women. It's The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Uh, heard of Margaret Atwood. Have you ever read it? No, never the book. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. It's a brilliant dystopian uh, novel about life under an authoritarian kind of religious regime. Okay. Uh, And it was actually made into a film, I think in the late 80s or early 90s, but the film was atrocious. Uh, But it kind of got recommissioned for Netflix. And I think, if I'm correct... Margaret Atwood is writing a follow-up book. Right. Okay. So any fans of dystopian oh. fiction out there, Charles Wormsley, I'm looking at you, news editor on NMA, uh, get buying. Um, five. Finally. Will you get this one right? This is a really obscure question. Oh, dear. I thought the others were bad. <laughs> it's the toughest question of all. Greg Hans, MP, Member of Parliament, yep. uh, Conservative MP for Chelsea and Fulham, around the corner from here, sort of. Uh, He's backing Jeremy Hunt in the Tory leadership race, and he's been Minister of State for Trade and Investment, Minister of London, and he's been Chief Secretary to the Treasury in several governments. But what type of gap does he claim to have invented on his website? And I love this fact. It is just astonishing, the, the, the chutzpah that it takes for an MP to have this on their website. Thinking of, think it's a, a specific thing that young people do a, involving a gap of time where they go away. Usually before university. Like a gap year? Yeah. Unbelievable, isn't it? Okay. Uh, he claims on his uh, website to have invented the gap year, pretty much. The bio on his site says, and I quote, After leaving Dr. Challoner's grammar school in 1984 course it was Dr. Challoner's, Greg set a trend by taking a gap year during which he worked as an attendant at a swimming pool in what was then West Berlin. I don't know how he could take responsibility for the invention of the gap year trend. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, no, that, I, think, I, think, I think that's a fairly kind of far-reaching claim. That sounds to me like uh, possibly one of the most spurious claims I've ever heard, but nowhere near as bad as some of the other stuff, so yeah. perhaps we can lay them off. Um, moving on. We are here to talk about gender in advice, uh, pay gaps and the like. Uh, But first, I think we should get to the basics. Uh, We do know that some people on the NMA comment boards aren't really on board with the whole gender pay gaps, equality uh, agenda. So my first question is, what should we do uh, to persuade our detractors that the cause of women is not only uh, worthy of focus, but also urgent in us? So I think the first thing that I would say is, is that there still is a huge amount of kind of misunderstanding, you know, around exactly what the gender pay gap is. Mm. Um, I think that there are many people who still think that this is all about equal pay. It mm. is not about equal pay. Mm. Um, gender pay gap is about the representation of women at senior levels uh, within organisations and the fact that there is, you know, there's a lack of them. Mm. Um, and you're right. I mean, I think some of the comments have been fairly galling you know, from individuals who perhaps would like to consider themselves to be professionals. Mm. Um, And I think it's highly unprofessional. I mean, comments like, why should we pay women more money? All they'll do is they'll spend it on more shoes and handbags. Mm. Um, Quite frankly, I do think that that's that, you know, that that is very disappointing. Yeah. Um, But I think that, you know, you've got to look at how this industry's grown up and where many of the advisors have actually come from. You know, they came from working in life companies when they had very large sales organizations. And we know that the majority of sales guys out there, you know, were men. Um, but I think that in the world of financial planning, um, 
where you know the whole approach that has to be taken um, is very different. And it really is about trying to kind of understand the client needs. Mm. It's also about understanding the individual as well. Mm. And if you're sitting there with a husband um, and a wife, or perhaps even a woman on her own, then, you know, perhaps a different approach needs to be taken to both. And I still feel that there's quite a significant kind of, you know, lack of understanding um, between um, the male and the female. So that's from a client management perspective, but within organizations as well. Um, there are many benefits that come from um, equality, gender equality, and more broadly, you know, diversity. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, many of the benefits and, you know, the advantages that come from it um, are also still not largely largely understood. So I think there, there definitely is a big kind of um, education mm. piece yeah. that still needs to be done. Yeah, I agree with you about the disappointing comments. Um, I'm going to ask this really cheeky question now that I've just come up with in, 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 in my head. Um, do you think that one of the reasons why uh, perhaps certain people within the advice profession are struggling to get on board with this is because they, they do so much work surrounding the retirement space a point where people are leaving their salaried uh, jobs or have left already, uh, they've got capital to invest. And the kind of the employment framework in which we normally on which we norm that we normally discuss uh, as part of, you know, gender pay uh, representation on boards and diversity just isn't quite relevant because the whole idea of uh, retirement, you know, is li you know, is literally you're walking away from those issues in the office or in the workplace. Is that one of the reasons you think why financial planners and, and IFAs in some circumstances have failed to get on board with it? I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the age demographic and it's not just about financial advisors. It is yeah. more broadly recognised that actually men um, in their kind of late 40s um, through their 50s yeah. just don't get this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, they just, they just don't. It seems to be a bit of a blind spot. Um, you know, whether that's deliberate um, or otherwise, um, you know, remains to be seen. But I think that if you look at um, you know, people either side of that age group and, you know, research, there has actually been research undertaken around this. So people that are sort of in their 60s and beyond recognise the importance of it. Um, and you know, people who are, you know, 40 and below also recognise the importance of it as well. So I think it is, you know, it's a generational thing. And I think that, you know, 10 years from now, I think we will find that the situation will actually be will actually be quite different. Hmm. Um, and that, you know, hopefully we won't actually be faced with as many kind of, you know, challenges around it. Yeah. Um, interesting to hear you mention the, the idea of, you know, the male in his 40s and 50s. We will come on to the numbers on that in a minute because we've got some very interesting research uh, which I'd like to share with you. It's sort of exclusive. Uh, moving on, um, we've passed the second round of gender pay gap reporting this year, haven't we? Um, have you noticed anything different about the results this year? I can't actually recall when precisely we last had a conversation about this, whether it was slightly before the deadline for April this year or whether it was slightly after. It was. But, but what was um, what's changed? Has anything changed, do you think? So if you look at the gender pay gap numbers, there are now, I mean, if you look at pure play financial advisory firms, um, there are 10 that are now reporting. I mean, you could also include other, you know, wealth management firms that have maybe got, for example, you know, an investment bank yeah. um, attached to it. But if you look at the pure, the pure play advisory firms, there are, you know, there are now, now 10 of them um, reporting. Last year, um, there were nine. Um, and the gap has dropped from 48.9% um, down to 44.9%, mm. uh, which is good. So there is an yeah, improvement there. There's also news. an improvement uh, on the bonus gap as well um, of about 3%. However, uh, if you then compare that to the national average, 
across all companies, the gender pay gap, the median I'm talking about here, mm. sits at around 9.3%. So financial services has got a huge amount of work to do to address um, uh, the gender pay gap and gender inequality. Mm. That's really interesting that there has been a little bit of progress there. Um, do you feel like shedding light on those figures is encouraging firms to actually take action on pay? So I think that one of the most beneficial outcomes from gender pay gap reporting, you're right, it has actually encouraged management teams to actually sit down and think about their own, their own situation, their own position, to look at the numbers. The government actually could have produced the gender pay gap for individual organisations if they'd wanted to. You know, they mm. collect some of that data already. Yeah, sure, yeah. It would just have been a question of actually um, uh, investing time and effort um, in putting the systems together. So I think that it has made leadership teams take a step back and think about what it is that they need to do to actually make it a more um, inclusive and fair working environment. And I think that's very positive. I think if you look at the quality of the reports, um, I did go through and actually have a look at them all. Uh, and I thought that on the whole, um, the quality, the content, um, and most importantly, what they're actually planning to do about it. There was actually um, some good substance there. Um, I think there is intent. Um, one of the 10 companies is currently signed up to the Women and Finance Charter. Another four are planning to do it. So that will mm. be, if they all follow through, 50% um, of the 10 will be signed up to the Women and Finance Charter. Um, so I think that it, you know, it does demonstrate that there at least is an awareness of the need to actually take action. Mm. But I think it's also important to say that we shouldn't expect change to happen quickly here. Mm. You know, this very much is a long-term game. Uh, and I think that what's important is that leadership teams say, okay, well, actually, recon let's recognize that, you know, it is very complex to change here. Um, and let's put in place um, a long-term plan that might last for between seven and 10 years. Um, and, you know, see how things progress over that period of time and let's just make sure that we track change. Do you think that would come across as at all disappointing for people who, you know, they, they just want the change now and understandably so? To say, you know, to hear, you know, perhaps they would welcome on the one hand a strategy, but a strategy that lasts 10 years, it's like, well, in 10 years time, I might not be working at this company. I might be doing something else. Yeah. Um, how does one balance up the issue of urgency with, with, with the issue of planning and, and, um, and transition? If the situation is addressed in a very urgent way, um, I think that it could actually, um, in some cases, be quite, be quite destructive mm. to an organisation okay. um, and to the culture. I think that this is something that actually has to be thought out mm. in a very careful way. It would be very easy to say, you know, we've got gender imbalance, what are we going to do about it? Right, okay, well, we're just going to have to parachute mm. um, a few women into senior, you know, into senior positions. And that's fire that, a lot of men. That's not, potentially, or maybe displace mm. a lot of men. That is not the way to do it. Mm. Organisations need to actually take a look at their policies and their processes, look at the structure of the organisation and say, right, okay, what are all of the things that we need to do, that we need to put in place that will actually um, uh, allow women to progress through this organization in the same way as men. So that could mean, for example, the, introdu the introduction of not just flexible working, but agile working. Um, and that means that everybody in the organization can you know, work in a very kind of flexible way. Flexible working tends to only apply to a subset um, of mm. the working population of a company, whereas with agile working, everybody works in the, uh, in, in the same way. Mm. The CEO works a day from home, for yeah. example. 
Um, so it's about looking at, you know, what are the initiatives and what are the levers that you can pull? Um, and, you know, that that is all going to take time. And I think that anybody that's expecting, um, you know, rapid change, there's definitely an education piece around this to say, no, actually, you know, we as a leadership team within this organization, we are committed to it. Um, but we do need to recognize that, you know, this is about actually taking a series of steps that will take a number of years before the situation improves. Mm. You also have to think about the talent pipeline that's coming through yeah. and look at, you know, how many you know, women are actually coming into the world of financial advice. Mm. Um, and there still is a significant difference between the number of men and the number of women. Mm. So there are, there you know, is. in addition to what's happening within the organization itself, there are also external factors that need to be considered in all of this too. Mm. Uh, a perfect segue into uh, the numbers. Uh, let's look at some hard numbers here. So CityWire, uh, courtesy of our wonderful diversity editor, Natasha Turner, who I believe you know, uh, has done some research uh, via freedom of inf information requests sent to the FCA all about the number of women and the number of men working as CF30s in financial advice. So to be clear, this isn't just financial advisors, it's anyone with that CF30 permission, uh, which I think is quite an important umbrella because it could include people in the next-gen category who are coming up through that talent pipeline, as you say. Uh, we asked the FCA, or Natasha asked the FCA, on the 10th of May this year to tell us how many CF30s were male and how many were female. Uh, and she also asked them to give us the same figures for 10th of May uh, last year so that we could confare, compare. And here are the results. Bada bing. Uh, the 10th of May uh, 2018, there were 62,500 uh, male CF30s. Uh, a year later, there were 63,585. And on the 10th of May 2018, there were 10,302 CF30 uh, women. And on the 10th of May 2019, this year, there were 10,823. So both numbers comparatively higher. Uh, but obviously, what that says to you, in the, in the space of a year, there's we've nowhere near made any progress in terms of really redressing that balance of bringing women into vice. So uh, we've busted that myth uh, for anyone uh, listening who's thinking, mm, not sure about that. Uh, the myth is untrue. I mean, we have not solved the problem. Uh, it's still an issue. Um, I should also say, Natasha also asked the FCA about the ages of CF30s. And I think this is really interesting, given what you were saying about, you know, men of a certain age in their 40s or 50s. Uh, this didn't come with a gender break breakdown. Uh, so we're not entirely sure about uh, who's male, who's female, but perhaps we could extrapolate or perhaps get a sense from the previous set of numbers about what the ratios might be. Uh, but we asked the FCA about the ages of CF30s as of 28th of March 2019. Here are the results. Uh, in the age bracket 18 to 24, there's 714 CF30s. That's the smallest number of the lot. Uh, 25 to 35, 10,019. 35 to 44, 15,407, 45 to 54, uh, and this is the biggest group, 45 to 54, 17,414 CF30s, 55 to 64, uh, 11,154, and the 65s and over, 2,543, uh, 2, I should say. So I am going to give that to you to look at it is, just so you don't have <laughs> to remember all of that uh, yeah. all, all of those questions yeah uh, all of those numbers um anything just off the top of your head that strikes you as interesting there uh obviously 
there's still a huge disparity, isn't there, between uh, the number of men and the number of women? Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, as I said, I mean, this isn't something that's going to change quickly. Um, I think that there is also the question of when a girl, woman is at school, university, mm. why should they choose uh, a career in the world of financial advice, financial planning? Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, that we know that for many people, it's perhaps not an obvious route. Perhaps they get into it typically maybe through, you know, a family member. They know somebody that's worked in the industry. It happens um, by accident. A lot, yeah, yeah. exactly. Just you know, so and, stumble upon it. In a lot of cases. Um, and for many people, you know, it'd be interesting to know, you know, how many, you know, how many girls at school who are maybe 14, 15 years old are thinking about a career in the world of financial advice or financial planning. Mm. Um, I would guess that the number would actually be quite small, um, but it can be a good career. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, perhaps some of the professional bodies, um, I don't know where the likes of the PFS stand right now in terms of engaging with schools and universities, but, um, you know, perhaps there's something um, that could be done about that. But I think it, it will have to come through initiatives like that um, to attract more women in yeah. to the industry. You know, I think it's something that um, it's not going to happen quickly. Mm. Um, quotas. I mean, one thing that really struck me as very interesting last year was uh, Natasha and I went to a uh, diversity and finance event uh, when Nikki Morgan, the chair of the Treasury Select Committee, was, uh, I think she was actually chairing it. Uh, she did a very good job chairing it uh, and managed to sort of extract a lot of the key issues. Uh, but she she didn't go as far as saying that, you know, uh, she wanted hard legislation to uh, pretty much impose rules on who and who should be employed. Um, and I know that, you know, the topic of positive discrimination is a very, very contentious one. Um, is it just something that you think the industry has to avoid, you know, and, and do things... Uh, what's the word, incrementally, um, or is there any room uh, within firms to say, you know, well, we are going to hire X percent. We are going to sort of rigidly impose some form of quota. Yeah, I think, you know, we have, we have seen um, some organisations doing that. Um, for example, you know, Virgin, you know, if I can point to, okay, they're not, they're not in the world of financial advice, but, you know, they were a bank before, obviously, they became yeah. part of Clydesdale Bank. And they've got a very expensive tracker fund. <laughs> they do indeed. <laughs> yep. Uh, just for the guys at the Lancat, I could not bring that up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, continue, sorry. <laughs> yep. Uh, uh, no, no, no problem at all. Yeah. So I think I think that you know the question of quotas, government-driven quotas, um, to be made part of legislation would not be a good thing. And I think that there is broad recognition that that would not be the right thing to do. Um, I think that if an organisation, a company, wants to actually um, impose their own quotas then that can be helpful to say our direction of travel is that mm. we want to be able to get to this point. Mm. But there are a number of things that might actually change over time that would make it quite difficult mm. to actually achieve that. So I think that for that reason, you know, chief executives, managing directors might actually be quite reluctant to actually sign up to any specific numbers um, or objectives. And I think that that's perfectly understandable. Um, but I think what is important um, to say uh, is that you know we do have a commitment here and um, we are going to put in place um, measures that will allow us to actually track how we are progressing uh, on a year-by-year -year basis. Um, we're going to be transparent around what we're doing. Mm. We will actually share the progress that we're making. Mm. Uh, we will talk to you about you know the problems that we're encountering um, and facing to you know to help you 
develop your understanding of you know maybe why progress you know isn't happening uh, as quickly uh, as it should be. I think signing up to initiatives like the Women in Finance Charter um, can be helpful. Um, although that said, um, you know, it has been recognised that there are a number of um, companies out there that are using it as part of a what typically is described as a purpose washing. Um, exercise mm. we can yeah. have call them the flag wavers where yeah. you know they appear on the surface to be doing a lot of great things but are they truly committed to it um, how and many of it, those firms meaningful? are financial advice firms are there any financial advice firms you don't have to name them but are there any in that list of 10 yeah uh, so uh, you think mm, they're, they're flag wavers so at the moment um, of the 10 there is one that signed up to the women in finance charter Having had a look through all of the gender pay gap reports of the others, there are another four that are said that they're actually evaluating and possibly will actually sign up to it. So maybe by the end of the year, um, we could, you know, we could have five. Mm. Um, but again, if you look at what's actually required with them in, in the, the Women in Finance Charter, again, it can take time to, to deliver results. Mm. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, maybe as a management team, um, you set some targets among yourself, um, uh, but, you know, whether or not you would actually want to then sort of, you know, communicate that to the broader workforce mm. um, and out to the wider market, um, you know, there is, there, is, there is a question mark around that. Yeah. Um, a bit of a random question concerning the FCA. I, mean, I was looking at uh, some of the uh, conduct of business source book uh, stuff on, uh, uh, I think it was uh, suitability uh, recently. And uh, I was kind of horrified to see, and I, you know, I'm pretty late to the party on this. People will be aware of it already, but I was pretty horrified to see that uh, the word "he," as opposed to "he" or "she," "he slash she," "they," uh, appears all over the FCA Cobb's book. It, okay, it's this whole thing assumes that the client in question is a man. Uh, and you know, if you're listening to this, Andrew Bailey, you got to get on top of that, mate. Really, I mean, that's kind of really outdated. Definitely. Definitely, that is not good. That's really, really bad. Yeah. I mean, perhaps it's not the first thing that you would, you know, it's we're talking, you know, little steps, sure, but uh, I just think that's so bad uh, mm. for the FCA handbook to that's, be uh, to be to, to be saying that. It's not exactly things. demonstrating leadership, is it? No, but it, you know, but it also sort of it, it makes you think. Well, when when was this written? Mm. You know, are our rules really? You know, it makes it sound like it was like written point. in the nineteen eighties. <laughs> When there was no regulation at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, no, I was really, really horrified to see that. Uh, so I think they should get on top of that. Uh, so I'm issuing a call to arms to the FCA on that. Change that. Obviously change a load of other stuff too. Uh, another thing that we might uh, might add actually that's quite interesting about the FCA is that when, when we've looked through FCA data, it's often quite difficult to get to the bottom of uh, uh, the numbers on uh, men and women. Uh, because there are areas where uh, the um, the only way of telling uh, who's a man and who's a woman is actually the pronoun that they put uh, the title um, Mr. or Mrs. or yep. Ms. that they put on the actual form. Okay. Um, so really getting to the bottom of this data is um, it involves a little bit of a fudge. You have to kind of go through it with a fine tooth comb and say, oh, okay. Mr. or Mrs., you know, and then add it all up. Yeah. Uh, it would be really, really useful for transparency purposes if the FCA was on on more on top of that as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that would aid businesses like your own. Not that this is, a, you know, in any way sort of commercial. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, if we have those sorts of problems, I'm sure you do too, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think at a macro level, it would really help to kind of understand, you know, what the sort of demographic profile of the, you know, the advisor community actually looks like. Yeah. And while today we're talking about gender, um, in 2020, it's all going to be about ethnicity. Yeah. So ethnicity pay gap reporting will come in. And then after that, it looks like there will be disability and social mobility. Yeah. And then all of that might actually be wrapped up in a fair pay report. So mm. gender really is only the start and the conversation is going to move on. Yeah. So I think that, um, yeah, you know, maybe perhaps they need to be a little bit more kind of, um, you know, forward looking yeah. and actually try and, you know, gather more data. Yeah. However, that said, under GDPR, um, it may well be that the individual decides that they don't want to, you know, provide yeah. that information. And I think it's a question of, okay, well, if I do decide to provide you with that information, then what are you going to do with it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, uh, I can see scenarios too in which, you know, people might be reluctant to disclose their salary, uh, it, perhaps to a third party researcher who's doing work on behalf of their own employer, uh, you know, or, or in any other scenario. Um, tell me about uh, websites and accessing gender pay gap reports just briefly, because I know that when we spoke in the lead up to our last sort of podcast conversation, uh, you were having real trouble with finding the gender pay gap report for one specific business That's that right. will, will remain nameless. Yeah. And it turned out that it was buried at the bottom of the website in the, was it the site terms and conditions or something like that? Yeah, so I think that I think that with some organizations they might have a group structure um, and they will have a number of different businesses yeah. within it. Um, and using the search function, I was unable on the on their website when I typed in gender pay gap, it did not come up. Comes up with now this. interestingly on this occasion I went straight to Google typed the name uh, of the company and gender pay gap and I was you know I was able to get straight to it so it, mm. it, it was quite easy but yeah we have seen com some companies really do you know try and you know try and hide it or perhaps not even put the report onto their website at all mm. that's I mean it's you know it's not difficult to google but equally I would say for anyone listening thinking it's not difficult to put something on a website nowadays so get better at that as well um Ines, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thanks, uh, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, I really hope that you're going to come back and keep updating us on your findings as the gender pay gap reports sure. keep coming out. Uh, I also hope that you're going to keep liaising with my brilliant uh, colleague, Natasha. Uh, and for anyone listening, thinking, oh, well, why do we need diversity? I think you've perfectly made the case there. It's the next big thing coming down the train line. And that's why Natasha has launched Citywide Diversity, which is our new diversity channel, solely devoted to the position of uh, minorities uh, and people from different backgrounds, economically, sexually, etc. Uh, in finance. Um, so do uh, subscribe to her new newsletter, which is coming out every Tuesday weekly. Um, brilliant. Ines, thank you so much for coming in. It's been That's a pleasure great. to have you. I'm sorry to say that that is all that we've got time for. Uh, suffice to say that if you enjoyed this latest episode, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us a lovely review. I would say, in addition, uh, if you have any news views or reviews you want to share with us on this topic or any other, indeed, uh, feel free to email us at news at citywide.co.uk. If you want to get in touch with Natasha specifically, she's on nturner, N-T-U-R-N-E-R, at citywide.co.uk. Um, we do read everything you write, and if you're lucky we might even publish a letter or an email as an article if we think it's really really good and worth uh, everyone else reading so get writing into us uh, we are here to, uh, we are keen to hear your views whatever they are uh, you've been listening to planning people so until next time uh, when we will do another rock, weekly rock hard quiz thanks and goodbye